We are reading verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And as we read your word this morning, Father, we do give thanks to you, and we rejoice that you have revealed yourself to us. And you've granted us understanding of what it means to serve you. We ask that your spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds this morning as we come to you seeking wisdom and understanding and life. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As a student at Furman University in the mid-1990s, I had the privilege of attending Mitchell Road Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina. And one of the hallmarks of Mitchell Road's ministries during those years was an annual missions conference in which they imported missionaries from around the world. They brought in first-class speakers from the mission fields. They conducted interviews. They had elaborate potluck meals. It was a festival, and almost all the students involved in our college ministry had the privilege of attending, talking with real live missionaries. We heard teaching about God's mission to the world and how we might be involved in that. During one of these conferences, I was contemplating and heavily considering what was God's call on my life. How was I going to connect with his mission and what he was doing in the world? And I was asking questions like, was I to live cross-culturally? Was God calling me to be a missionary in a foreign place, in a different culture? Or was I to be someone who participated in seminary training, assisting others, training pastors, the next generation, for their service in the church? Or was I to be a pastor, this thing that people since I was 12 years old had told me I was destined to be? Was I supposed to go do that? Was I to serve in college ministry? There were lots of very big questions in front of me as I attended the missions conference that year. I was encouraged at that point through a series of conversations to read a book by Stephen Neal. It may sound slightly strange. The book is entitled A History of Christian Missions. It's a classic book that catalogs the history of the church as it's gone out to the nations proclaiming the gospel. 
It details the successes and failures, the gains and the losses of the church in its mission to the world. And in reading Stephen Neal's book, there's one story that's always stuck with me, though. It's hidden in pages, stuck somewhere in the middle, but it always gripped me. And it gripped me because it seemed to capture the main question at the heart of the Christian mission. The main question that plagues us, the main question that causes us to stumble. The story that Neil tells is of the 8th century. There was a monk who was commissioned by the church. His name was Boniface. And he was sent to the tribes of peoples that lived east of the Rhine River. There had been very little activity by the church there. The people who lived in, dense, in the dense central forest of Germany were known for worshiping natural springs and trees. That is what they were given to. And Boniface labored for 15 years, copying the words of Scripture into the language, ministering amongst the people. He found it difficult. And so finally, one day, he picked up his axe, and he went to a famous majestic oak tree that was known as the Oak of Thor, and he chopped it down. It was a tree that the people worshipped. It was a tree that they thought was sacred. And if anyone chopped down the tree, certainly the god of Thor would pay them back in recompense. Boniface was still standing at the end of it, and the tree was not. The people asked themselves the question, well, certainly then Boniface God must be the true God, and so they converted. And then the tree was milled and turned into the very first chapel in that region. It's a tremendous story, bold and courageous, strong as Boniface. And as I read it, it brought the question to me very clearly. And that story continues to beg the question of us as well. What resources did Boniface know about that allowed him to be so strong and courageous? What resources was I going to need as one who was entering into ministry? And what resources do you need? What confidence do you need as we enter into God's mission? It's a question for all of us. It's not simply a question for those who give themselves to full-time vocational ministry. But as we enter together into God's mission, what do we need from him? How do we find such courage, strength, and confidence for serving him? And this fall, we will answer that question as we look at the book of Joshua. It's the story of Old Testament Israel inheriting the land, going in and taking what God had given to them. And this morning, as we look at chapter 1, we find the answer to the question about what we need from God. How do we gain the confidence to enter into his mission? And we're briefly this morning going to consider four things. First, in verses 1 through 4, you'll see that our confidence is built on God's promise. If you follow explicitly along in verse 3, it says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. This is God speaking in an encounter with Joshua. And these are not new words. It's not a new promise 
that God has somehow come up with and given to Joshua. In fact, we find the exact same words in Deuteronomy chapter 11, where God speaks to Moses a promise of a land. And of course, reading back into Scripture further, we know that it was not a new promise given to Moses, but rather the promise that was given to Moses was a reiteration of a promise that was given to a man named Abraham. And we find that promise first stated in Genesis 12 and verses 1 through 3, where God promises that Abraham and his family would be blessed by God and become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And in Genesis 15, we find that that promise is expanded to include the land of Canaan. And so everything that God says here to Joshua is rooted in that original promise that God made to Abraham, that he would make Abraham a great family who would be a blessing to all the ends of the earth. And friends, this is where confidence for mission, for the people of God in the Old Testament This is where it came from. This was its genesis and source, is that it was derived from the promise of God, that they were to enter into the land of Canaan based on and built upon this promise, that it was sure and God was reliable and trustworthy and true. But of course, there were many fears. There were great transitions taking place in Israel. We read in chapter one that Moses died. The great servant of the Lord was gone. Forty years they had been in the wilderness, and now they were on the edge of the land. And there were their great enemies in their walled cities with all of their fortifications, with all of their strength. And Israel was scared, crossing the Jordan at flood stage. And so they had tremendous questions, fears, and concerns. And you can certainly understand those. And why were they to be sure that God was going to make good on what he had promised? And this is another piece of this story, of this promise of God. And it also reaches back to Genesis 15. Because you see, Abraham had the same question. Was God going to make good on what he said? You see, Abraham had a tremendous problem on his hands because God had said he was going to make him a great nation. And he was going to give him the land of Canaan. And yet Abraham had no child. He had no heir. And so this leads to a question for God is, how are you going to do this? If I have no child, how is my family going to be great? How are the nations going to be blessed through me if there is no heir? It's a natural question, but it was also a crisis of faith for Abraham. And so God instructs Abraham to take several animals and to split them in pieces. By our own cultural nomenclature, it sounds awful and horrific, But it was quite common in the ancient world. It was called a covenant-cutting ceremony in which the pieces of an animal were maimed and they were laid on opposite sides of a path. And then what would happen is a servant who was going to serve a king would pass through the pieces of the animal and they would swear their loyalty to the king. And as they passed through the pieces of the animal, what they were implicitly saying is, if I do not fulfill my vows to this king, may this happen to me. And so you were pledging your life. You were pledging your livelihood on your obedience to that great king. Abraham falls into a sleep, and you can understand why in Genesis 15 he has a nightmare. Because he is having this crisis of faith, 
He's having to trust that God is going to make him a great nation, that his descendants were going to be as many as the sands upon the seashore and the stars in the sky. That's what God had said to him. And yet he had no son. And he was now going to pledge himself to this God. He was going to pledge his life on his loyalty to this God about whom he had tremendous questions. But then the marvelous thing about the dream is Abraham doesn't pass through the pieces of the torn apart animals. Rather, he sees a symbol, a flaming pot passes through the pieces. It was God himself. And God made covenant that day with Abraham that he was going to fulfill his promise, that he was going to make good on every word that was spoken. God swears by his own life that he was committed to Abraham and to his family, blessing the nations of the earth, to Abraham and his family, filling the land of Canaan and working out from there into all the ends of the earth. Because what we find as the Bible progressively unfolds is that this promise was never about a small piece of turf in the Middle East. It was about that, that is where it began. But it was going to unfold and be far greater that there was something for, far more magnificent in the design and in the mind of God. That we learn in Romans 4 that Abraham is the heir of the whole world. That the nations were blessed in him. That the land of Canaan was on the way to something else. Because what we discover is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of that promise. And we read Psalm 2 this morning, which is particularly instructful, instruct, and, and instructs us and, uh, and is particularly helpful to us. But in Psalm 2, God instructs the Davidic son to ask him a question. He says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance in verse 8. And friends, this is the question that our Lord Jesus asked of God. He was the one who was bold enough to ask the question. And then on the other side of his resurrection, he states the answer when he says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations. And it's important for us to put together all of the biblical story colliding there in this one momentous event as Jesus is the fulfillment of all that had been said. And that the ruler of the nations was now risen from the dead and he was reigning over the world. That he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. That he's the ruler of all the kings of the earth. That that is the promise of God. That's the courage and strength and confidence of the church. Is that our mission, what God calls us to enter into, is built upon that promise. That the nations... They belong to God. Now, how does this practically apply? As a young college minister, I set foot on the college campus at the ripe age of 23. And one of my first conversations with, was with one of the professors at the college. And after some small talk, he looked at me and he said, why are you here? What are you doing? It's like, well, so much for the small southern sweet town. What gives you the right to do what you're doing? 
Several years later, when I started to plant a church in Arlington, Virginia, in Washington, D.C., I sat down for a conversation unexpectedly, was asked the same question. What are you doing here? What gives you the right? And friends, our confidence, our right to go out is not derived by any qualification in us. It's derived from the promise of God. We go out. We are commissioned to go out. We are authorized to go out because God has laid claim on the nations. It's his promise. So it's the first basis of our confidence. Now the second, in verses 1 and 2, we see that our confidence must be renewed from generation to generation. It's important to recognize that the book of Joshua records for us historical events about Israel taking the land. Of course, this was written several generations later. It was written further down the line to Israel. And it wasn't just written as a curiosity historical piece, but rather it was written to them that they would also take up this great calling to possess the nations, to take up the promise of God. Because each generation ultimately has to own, each generation ultimately has to claim these promises of God. And so after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. And that is the command that came to Israel each successive generation. And it is the command that comes to us as well. Will we enter into the inheritance of God? Will we enter into what Jesus says belongs to him? He says that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him, that he rules over the nations, that therefore we can go and make disciples because he is the king and the ruler. And will we, generation by generation, renew our commitment to that great promise and to that great purpose? And friends, very practically in the life of the church, this is one of the most important things. Because a church cannot simply draft off of its former successes. It can't live inside of a legacy that was established by sacrificial obedience years before. That from generation to generation, we have to inherit this promise and we have to take up this promise in faith and we have to find our confidence in that promise and renew ourselves in obedience to it. And this applies to every one of us in the room. It's important for the youth of our church to ask the question, how can I be engaged in God's service? How is God going to use my life that I can render myself to him in obedience and I can contribute to the building of his kingdom? There's no more important question to be asking of yourselves for our teenagers. But we can't stop there. For our older generation, who has done so much to establish the life and health of this church, of, its, of this community, who have given to it over many years, you also don't get a pass. We'll hear about Caleb in future chapters, who is 85 years old and still vigorous and vital in the mission that God had given to him. And so you can't rest on past accomplishments. You can't rest on a history or a legacy. 
that you too have to embrace this calling of God, this promise of God. And then for our younger generation, parents who often feel life is just too busy, that you're overwhelmed by the task at hand, and you can just simply give the mission of the church to the older generation, and you'll assume it and step into it one day when you have more time. That's not an option for you either. That's not what the command of God is. It is to step in with confidence from generation to generation in the present moment, owning the great possession that God has put in front of us through Jesus Christ. And so we must step into that in faith. Third here, in verses five through eight, we see that our confidence is rooted in God's servant. If you follow along this dialogue and this encounter between God and Joshua, in verse five, he says, no man shall be able to stand before you. All the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And there is a unique relationship taking place here between God and this leader named Joshua. He was the successor of Moses, the servant of the Lord, who held a unique place in the economy and the plan of God. There was great uncertainty. Israel was scared, and now they had this new leader as they were to enter into the land and take up their mission. Joshua was to take them into their inheritance. He was to lead them to rest. But one of the most important things as we read our Bibles and as we consider people like Joshua is laid down for us by Augustine. And Augustine said it like this. He says that the Old Testament is in the new revealed And the New Testament is in the old concealed. And so we have to look to the progressive story to understand exactly what all of this is pointing to. Because in the figure of Joshua, we have a sketch. As if an artist were drawing something and first gives a pencil sketch and then is going to bring in the paint and the colors and all the definition. And that's what we have in the figure of Joshua is a sketch and a shadow of something that's being prefigured. Because there's another who shares this name who comes. That the name Jesus is the name Joshua, is the name that God saves. And he comes as the greater and the true one who is to lead the people. That God says that the success of this mission was going to happen because of Joshua. And that Joshua was to be diligent and faithful to the law, to meditate on it, to not turn to the right or to the left. And of course, we know that Joshua had his faults and failures, but the one who came after him, who took his place, the true fulfillment of this promise, he didn't turn to the right or to the left. He didn't deviate from the law and the command of God, that he allowed the claim of God to sit clearly upon him, and he was fully and perfectly obedient. And then he went down into death, and because he was innocent, because he was righteous, God raised him from the dead. And friends, ultimately, our confidence when it comes to the mission of God is rooted in this righteous servant who rules over the nations of the earth. He says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Go, therefore, and make disciples. 
our confidence is never grounded in our plan. It's never grounded in the strength of our finances. It's never grounded in anything that we can conjure up. It can only be grounded in the promise of God and also in God's servant who has won the great victory on our behalf and invites us to enter into it. And the final piece of this we find in verse 9. And here we see that our confidence is rooted in God's presence and provision. God says to Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. These words, of course, echo Jesus' final words to the disciples. Behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Jesus, nearly quoting the first chapter of Joshua, tells the disciples that he will be with them in presence and provision as they enter into his mission, as they lay hold of the inheritance that he has given to them, what he has won. And this was God's command to Joshua. And by commanding Joshua, he was inviting all of the nation, all of his covenant people, to know that he would be present with them, that he would provide for them, that he would meet every need. Because the uncertainty and the fear was real. God doesn't take that away in Christian mission. It's not somehow erased or eradicated. With a conservative plan, we cannot simply nullify all the concerns. But rather, Israel was to step into the Jordan, and they were to go take the promised land as an act of faith, confident that God and his promise and through his righteous leader was going to meet every one of their needs. And this is the great challenge for the church. Because to enter into this enterprise of God's mission requires faith. It requires us to believe. And one of the most difficult things that we encounter in any church across the ages is the need to be prudent and wise, and the need to also walk in faith. Several years ago, it's a decade ago now, when Melissa and I picked up our things and moved to Washington, D.C., we moved into a small apartment. We had two kids, didn't have much of a paycheck, didn't have much of a support system behind us. And some people looked at that plan and they said it was foolish, and perhaps they were right. <laughs> but we felt called by God to go. It was one of those unique moments in life. There was some prudence that had been thrown out the window, and it was quite scary. And it was a difficult year. It was hard as people challenged and said no, as people rejected the idea of a new church in the gospel. It was very difficult. But one of the things, anecdotally, that I've noted about my own journey in and out of trusting God in his mission is that the times where God has shown up powerfully in presence and provision has been when there was a step into the unknown, when there was a step of obedience, when plans were prudently made but everything wasn't solved, where everything wasn't understood, that that was when miraculous checks showed up in the mail to meet the monthly needs of income. 
That was when people were healed. That was when people were converted. That was when people began to change in enormous ways, when the kingdom of God almost becomes palpable, touchable. It's when steps of faith are made. And so we can sit in our pew and we can say, well, I don't think God shows up in that way. And God's question back to us is, are you going to believe? Are you going to step into the inheritance that I've given you? That's when I show up. And that's what we'll see through the book of Joshua, is God showing up in miraculous and monstrous ways, providing for his people, delivering them time and time again, even despite their own unfaithfulness. You see, Israel wasn't there to wait on God on the side of the Jordan. That's not what the command was. They were to arise and go. The land was theirs. And friends, the nations of the earth are yours. You're the heir of all things. Every place that the sole of your foot trods belongs to our Lord Jesus. As Abraham Kuyper would have it, every square inch of the world belongs to Jesus, and he claims it as his own. That's the world you live in, and God invites you to participate in his mission, going out and claiming it, serving him in that, renewing ourselves in his promise, and renewing our commitment from generation to generation. And don't miss that great opportunity to understand the purpose and the mission and the mind of God and to know your place in it. Please join me in prayer.